Mr. Lowry, he was the first African-American consultant for the global consulting firm McKinsey and Company in 1968. I want to talk about that 1968. I don't know if he's going to feel some type of way <laughs> when people start uh, recounting. Like when I think about when I graduated high school, I get a little nervous. Uh, later, he became the first African-American uh, senior partner at the prestigious Boston Consulting Group, BCG where he led the firm's workforce, diversity, ethnic marketing, and minority business development consulting practice. And um, he continues to serve as the uh, as a, as a senior advisor to BCG while heading his own private consulting firm, James H. Lowry um, and Associates. And recently he released a book, and it's titled Change Agent a life dedicated to creating wealth for minorities, change agent, a life dedicated to creating wealth for minorities. And you can pick that book up on Amazon. Welcome to the show, Mr. Lowry. I'm fine. Attorney Fenton. And I have to say, when I get up this early and I'm talking to a lawyer, I get nervous because you people charge about a, about a half an hour. So. <laughs> no, we try to hit you every 15 minutes, sir, for correction. Every 15 minutes, every 15 right. minutes we're hitting you. I know, I know. You know I say, if I'm being charged for this, you know, no. No, no, it's, no, a, no, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to be on WBON with yeah. that follow for so many years. Yeah, nice to hear from you. Are you, a, you are you originally from Chicago? Yes, sir. South side of Chicago, 60th and Everhart. Wow, wow. And did you spend, like, your entire childhood in Chicago, all that good stuff? Absolutely, absolutely. You used to hang out in Washington Park and played play basketball, baseball, Washington Park, and hang out. Went to A.O. Sexton grade school. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I transferred up north. I got a scholarship to go to Francis Parker. Right. So I would take three transfers and go from the south side of Chicago to the north side, and that's literally how my life changed, you know? And what uh, you, so, that was yeah, when? Yeah. That was when? Oh, you get my age away. No, it was, it was the, I, I went there in 1953. Wow. Because I saw, and then um, I, I saw what co- college, then you went to college, right? Right. And um, wh- which college was that? It started with the- Grinnell, Grinnell College in the middle of Iowa. Uh-huh. I was I was there with Herbie Hancock. Wow. <laughs> Do you still keep in contact with them? All the time. He and his wife and his kids, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good living. And so then you went from there to Harvard Business School. Did you did you start working after college or straight to business school? No, no. There was just a block of time after after Grinnell had a program that sent graduating seniors to the third world. Uh, so I, they sent me to Tanzania. I was in Tanzania in 1961 when it became independent. Mm, what did you learn? I, I learned so much. I mean, and, and I'm saying this to your, your listeners. You know, that was my, we're talking about 1961, so you know how, how old I was. I was young, and that was my attachment to the continent. And I've been attached to the continent going back, and and then I was I was hired by the Peace Corps. And the Peace Corps, I gave the offer as a training officer, then I went to, I got an international degree at University of Pittsburgh. Then I went to Peru as associate director. And there I met Bobby Kennedy. Oh. And I met Bobby Kennedy in Peru. He hired me to come work in the Bed-Stuy Restoration Corporation. Mm-hmm. And then he was assassinated. And then, uh, you know, what can I tell you? But then I was recruited by this big consulting firm. 
And I did that. And then I, all of them went to Harvard. I mean, most of those people at that, that, you know, I'm just telling them like it is. Right. Uh, everybody there either went to Harvard or Stanford or one of those, you know, very prominent schools. And I'd lie. I said, I, I didn't feel intimidated. So when I started doing well, I asked them to send me to Harvard. So it was really from this school, uh, from this major corporation, global consulting, uh, you know, firm that sent me to Harvard. So that's when I went to Harvard and became class president and all that kind of good stuff. So are we talking about McKinsey at this point, McKinsey and Company? We're talking about McKinsey and Company, right. Okay. So, so yeah. I want I want to take a couple of steps back because you said something that resonated with me, but I just wanted to resonate hopefully in the same way it did for me for other people. You said you when you were in Tanzania, you were introduced to the continent. What does that mean? I mean, okay, yeah, I, you know, I wrote this book, but in the book, I mean, coming on the south side, we, we had this show called Amo Amo Theater on the south side, right on Sixty First mm-hmm. Street. So the only thing we ever saw in Africa were African movies with, you know, black people with slaves and then black people fighting other people. So that was the image <laughs> of the continent, right? right? Right, So that's what we've been brainwashed to see, you know. And all of a sudden, I'm over there and I'm seeing people taking over control, managing businesses, managing departments and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And that's when I got, I said, wow, this is a different image. And I think Richard Pryor said the same thing when he went to Africa he saw Africa in a different way. Mm-hmm. And that's the same kind of impact it had on me. Yeah. And I maintained those contacts. And when I was with McKinsey, uh, McKinsey hired me, well, they didn't hire me, they assigned me to go back to Tanzania. And I worked with the president of Tanzania. And we decentralized government. That was one of the best projects I ever did. I spent two years in Africa, in Tanzania, and we decentralized government. My, my daughter was born there. And so it's, it's been an established you know, relationship that I've had. I was on the African American Institute board for twenty years. Right, right. I mean, I, I would imagine that you already had a sense of who you were, or um, as a person. But I'd yeah. imagine also that that opened you up to say, oh, "Okay, okay, I, me as a you know African American man, you know, I'm more than America, right?" And uh, yeah. so culturally, right. So it answers a lot of questions in that regard and allows a person to move forward like it did for me. And then, but how did it allow you to see like the world more global and business as global? That's a great question. I mean, I think to, to your first question, I mean, a part of your first question, in terms of looking at me as an African American, it has, and it's changed slightly, mm-hmm. but the Africans embraced me as an African American. Right. And, and it was a special significance to me to know that they saw me differently. And I'm not, not saying anything disparaging mm-hmm. about my white counterparts, but they saw me as African-American, and, and that, that meant a lot to me. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, which is very profound, is that I saw all the resources being taken out of Africa and going to England and France. And, the, and then the third one is, it was right in the middle when all these countries were getting independent. So you saw a transformation between uh, colonies, you know, and year after year, another country was, you know, Guinea was the first, and then Ghana, you know, we saw these things happening in Nigeria. And so there was a whole changing of the world order, economic order. Mm-hmm. It sets the, sets the stage, I'm sure, for your yeah. journey. And on the line with us is the esteemed 
Mr. James H. Lowry, Senior Advisor at Boston Consulting Group and President of James H. Lowry and Associates and um, newly penned author of the book Change Agent, A Life Dedicated to Creating Wealth for Minorities. And um, he was just taking us through a bit of um, his journey uh, from um, Chicago, the south side of Chicago, to high school, to uh, being overseas in Tanzania, to being recruited by uh, McKinsey uh, Consulting Firm, and so on and so forth. And then um, your journey to Harvard Business School. You know, Mr. L- oh, welcome back, Mr. Lowry. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I have a, a somewhat of a similar story. Um, after when I was in law school, I did an internship over in Nairobi, Kenya. Mm. And, um, and you know, and not to harp too much, but the, that, you know, I'll, I'll take you back to that duality of uh, Dubois spoke about. Right. On the yeah. one hand, you know, I'm an American. Then on the other hand, I'm an African. And I think that a lot of us grapple a lot of black people specifically. Let's talk about black men. I think a lot of us grapple with this identity issue. And so even when we're presented with opportunities, it's difficult for us to focus on that opportunity or actualize in America as a result of not having that identity in Africa, that pilgrimage, if you will, like Malcolm X took, you know, Mm -hmm. it it, it resolves that for you, which then creates space for you to just be you and actualize. So that's what I took from your share. Well, I mean, we could talk all day on this one because we, we're bonding on, on the issue. But in the book, you mentioned, you know, I did write this book. And one of the things I said is that black people have to accept and, and take advantage of the relationship. And the black diaspora is real. Right. That black people are in Caribbean, black people in South America, black people in the continent. And they still welcome us with a special, you know, outreach to us to help Mm -hmm. them develop. And if we do not take advantage of this openness and and willingness to work with us economically, socially, politically, and economically, then we're missing something. Like I said, you and I could probably talk all day on that one. For sure. I strongly believe that. Well, I I think we're missing everything. So, I I mean, I I want you to speak directly to this. It's a bit of a departure, but I don't think so. You know, I think oftentimes what happens, what's happening is that like we're caught up in trying to being trying to we're we're caught up in being validated or attempting to be validated in America without embracing who we are as global citizens. As you know, even from a, you know, standpoint of, you know, in business. So so let's move forward then on that. So so how did you make your transition? Like, how did you enter into that world? Yeah, I think that the key phrase, I mean, you took me back to my childhood. You took me back to Eberhardt, 61st Street. And I had the foundation of two parents who loved me and loved my brother. Mm-hmm. We never lost track of where we came from. Right. No matter where I went, I was still a black guy from the south side of Chicago wanting to and aspiring to help other blacks. It doesn't matter if I was at Harvard at McKinsey, or in Tanzania. That was always in the forefront of my mind, and that's how I dedicated my life. So no matter how, how far I went, whatever I did, and you you know the things that I've done in, in my career, mm-hmm. it was always imperative for me to look back and help people who, who I could help, I could lift up, I could pass the baton on. 
I could help economically. That was a part of my DNA, and it hasn't left me in 60 years. Mm-hmm. Did you struggle any with uh, success remorse? No, not really. Never, never. Because, you know, even at my age now, I would say to you, you know, we, we have not cracked this code. We have not gotten to the mountaintop. So you leverage whatever success you have with your eye on still going to a higher level. Mm-hmm. And if all, you know, I'm going to be very honest and pretty controversial. If all black people thought that way, I don't know where we would be in 20 years, but I know, I know we would be a darn well, you know, faster and more powerful if we all had that same mindset. No, every time I went somewhere, I brought black people with me. When I was the first black at McKinsey, I recruited 19 other black people in two years. Oh, wow. Because I could have been the first and only black. I could have been that black on the corner of the office. And that was never my intent. My intent was expose and, and, and leverage McKinsey to help other black people and help other black people do it. And that's one of the things I look back on when I think about some of the people I helped get into McKinsey, where they are now and where the heights that they have reached, the, the power that they have achieved. I always thought that was something I should do and other people should do. If you will, can you just give some scope to what consulting companies are like McKinsey and Company and BCG, Boston Consulting Group? Yeah, I think that that, that's a great question because I think that there's this mystery about consulting. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the the field of consulting, consultants, especially when I joined, you know, uh, consulting was about to take off in the 60s. Mm-hmm. It was it was a kind of an embryonic kind of industry. They were doing a few things. A few companies like McKinsey was going overseas to Japan. So it was just starting. Now, if you look at most of these big consulting firms, we're talking about they're in 30, 40 countries. Right. They're doing billions of dollars in revenue. Right. But the most important thing, attorney, they're changing the mind of beautiful, of brilliant people who control wealth and control government and institutions. We are the we are the people they lean on to give them the answers to improve the profitability, to improve their market share, to improve the products that they have developed. And it's a it's a heck of a responsibility. And the good firms, that's why I'm saying with no disrespect to anybody who could put up their sign and say I'm a consultant. There's a difference between the people who put up a science I'm a consultant mm-hmm. and, and, a, and a McKinsey or a BCG who have, you know, 40 different offices that got partners across the globe and they're billing billions of dollars. And therefore, the other thing we got to accept, because we make so much money, we can recruit the best and the brightest from Harvard, Stanford, Oregon, and all the rest. Yeah. So there, it, it, it's a pyramid that's built on, on smarts, teamwork, and and intelligence and that's a powerful thing and we should get more people like us into these firms yeah. and that's that's why i've never quit Be- before i transition and we have to go to break um the only job i ever thought about having was as a consultant and um you know i didn't know what consulting was until i made it to right. law school and then all you know i heard a bunch of people said i'm interviewing with mckinsey it was like the big fish like oh my god i got an interview with mckinsey i was like who's mckinsey right. Right. And then I was in, well, I was in Boston too. 
And then BCG, of course, was recruiting. So I had a couple of classmates who went to McKenzie and, you know, Boston Consulting and so forth. But I, I didn't know what it was until then. So so when we when we return on the other side of the break, what I'd like you to do then um, as a consulting a consultant is to consult us, if you will, as black people, um, as a change agent about um, wealth processes, um, closing the wealth gap, and so on and so forth. On the line with us, we have the esteemed James H. Lowry, and uh, he's been sharing with us a bit of his uh, background um, as a senior advisor at Boston, uh, as a senior advisor at Boston Consulting Group and the president of James H. Lowry and Associates and um, so on and so forth. He also has a book, and I I know that you can obtain it on Amazon because I checked it out and I will be ordering it. It's called Change Agent, a life dedicated to creating wealth for minorities. And with that, on the other side of the break, I said, uh, Mr. Lowry, and thanks for holding on. Um, So as a consultant, (laughs) first, what have you learned about – the uh, the black people, African Americans, particularly in America, and um, our habits and what we can do, you know, individually and collectively to um, um, improve or advance ourselves from an economic standpoint. That's it's a great question. I'll try to be brief on this one, mm-hmm. but uh, I think coming out of the McKinsey experience, the BCG experience, I think one of the things I learned is that we. We have opportunities. Mm-hmm. People have opportunities. Communities have opportunities. But how do we take advantage of these opportunities? Right. And I think what they, I was taught, let's look at the data. Let's look at the, where, where things are. And let's try and, and, and leverage the data mm-hmm. to our advantage. Right. And right. in my book, I talk about when I was a consultant to Harold Washington. And Harold Washington wanted me to be the chairman of the board of the library system. And I said, on one condition, he said, what was the condition? I said, let me design a minority business program for the city of Chicago. And we got together in his living room and we plotted and planned that. And then, and I did the analysis doing my, uh, my study and saw how little money were going to the blacks and Brown communities and women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back in those days, I mean, it was kind of dangerous almost. I'm talking about all the money that was coming to us. But we did do our analysis, and based on our analysis, we came up with the goal of 25% going to black people and 5% going to women, and it's still in its place. Right. So that was in 1985. So I used my experience and data, you know, analysis, uh, your skills, to say, come up, this is the answer. I did the same thing at Ford Motor Company and saw how few dollars are going to browns and blacks. Mm. We did, with Jesse's help, we're able to get the first major corporation in America to do a billion dollars with minority business. And that opened up the doors for a lot of people to come to Detroit. It opened up the whole field of automotive uh, manufacturing for black people and brown people. So I think what we got to do is be more analytical. I think black people are very emotional. They're beautiful people. But sometimes you got to be very analytical and looking at things the way they are to try and affect the change. Now, in my book, that I'll go over briefly, I can't go over it all, mm-hmm. I listed 10 things I think black people should do differently. Okay. The first thing I did, I said black people must accept those who control capital control the country. Right. And that's a right. very simple thing, but if we don't have capital, we have no power. 
Yeah. Without any power, the problems of besetting the people on the west side and the south side of Chicago are going to get worse. But, Mr. Lowry, I must interject. Yes. <laughs> no, I, I think we think that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party controls the country. No, but you got to ask the question. Now we're getting controversial. I'm not getting controversial. You just said what you said. I'm just saying I think – let me let me rephrase. I okay. think many of us think that political parties control the country. And you just said – you presented some evidence, right? You said right. your premise is that who he who controls the capital controls the country. And controls the party. Okay, now we can move on. <laughs> <laughs> now we can move on. Now, I mean, everybody listen to this to start doing their own homework yeah. and seeing who's making decisions and what, how it affects people. Yeah. Number two, we have to work collectively. We must create as many billion-dollar businesses, black businesses, as possible. Okay. I ain't talking about million-dollar businesses. I'm talking about billion dollars. Right. And you, look, you mentioned tech, and Ja Rule mentioned tech. The, pe- the seven of the richest people in the world are owners of tech companies. Right. Okay, where, where is our black Zuckerberg? Right. Where is, they're there. They're geniuses. They're at North Carolina ENT. They're at Howard. They're at Spelman. We got to identify those people and help them and grow them and invest in them so they can be billion-dollar businesses, not million-dollar Yep. Let me, we have to, can yeah. I interject right there? Sure, let's have fun. Because a lot of folk don't understand the significance of scale or controlling an industry. Yes, absolutely. It's changing the whole world. Tech is changing the whole world. There's no industry that's not affected by tech. Mm -hmm. If you ask your audience, what are the four or five major industries in America where there are no major black players in it? Let me give you one. Right. Health is going to represent 26% of the GNP. Attorney Fenton, can you name one major black company in the health field? No, no. We have one or two sponsors here, local. <laughs> but yeah. Well, I mean, I, I take my hat off to Willie Woods. I mean, Willie Woods got in there through yeah. medical gloves. Yeah, Willie Woods. Everybody yeah, thinks yeah. he got all that money through hamburgers. Hamburgers invest, help them invest in medical gloves. Right. So that's another thing we got to do. The other thing I said, we got to work and support. Now, this is what you just said. We should support and select officials who work on our behalf. Correct. I don't care what color they are, but basically we should support those who can say in three years, five years, because I was in the city hall. I was at the state assembly. I was in the federal government. My community, Inglewood is better off. Woodlawn is better off. Right. Hyde Park is better off. If we can't do that, then who do we have to blame? Right. We're, we're elected the people. Right. Five, black leaders at the C-suite to leverage their clout to grow minority businesses. So there are a lot of people who are not in minority business, not even that function. But if they're the C-suite talking to the president and the board, they should say it is in our best interest as a company. It is in our best interest as a country to support black business. Because guess what? The demographics are changing. And pretty soon, blacks and brown will represent all the people, a larger percentage of the people in America. If we do not create wealth, what would we do? We yeah. absorb wealth. Can, so we got to do that. I, I got to interject again. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> 
See, what's happening is that we're flying the soul plane without without any instruments. We we have to talk about the data. See, we cannot hold politicians and other institutions accountable because we don't our relationship with them and our asks are not objectified. It's 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 emotionalized. So do I like you? But 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 I had to stop there because we can't we don't know if they've made any improvements in Inglewood because we haven't collected the data prior to them going into office. Yes. I just had yeah. to say that. Okay. Yeah, we're on the same thing. I said the other day we got a high income people. We you know. I mean you got a lot of lawyers who who make a little money. Do we pool our capital to buy property? Yeah. I mean, Detroit was taken over. There were a lot of rich people. I made rich in Detroit because of the work I did at Ford General Motors. And all right, that. right. Did they buy all that property in downtown Detroit? <laughs> so don't, don't, you know, don't complain about gentrification when you had the opportunity to buy all that property cheap and you didn't do it. Yeah. Okay. So that's another. Let's do this. Let's 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 stop ahead, right there. And every time you have something, I'm glad you're saying it because then I get to come behind you. See, it's easy to counterpunch. It's it's, okay. it's it's real difficult to throw the first punch. It's much easier to counterpunch. <laughs> but, but you're not counterpunch. You're just saying the same yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, no, no. You're saying it better. But I have to say this before we go to break because I don't want to forget. And I I yeah. I would I did I went on an entire rant about this. I say, um, uh, yeah, that's what I said. I said we open the door for gentrification because we don't have any accountability in our community. We just let anybody come in and buy. And then when it's available, we don't put our resources together collectively and nor do we value it, which also leads us back to, you know, data. Like, all right, do we understand the dynamics of the economics in our community? Are we thinking global? You know, which yeah. then, if because if we're cutting ourselves off local because we're saying, oh, look at the problems of black people. Oh, woe is me. But if we looked at the problems and we if we embrace the entire world, if we embrace Africa and what's going on in Africa and their challenges the way that we do here. And then we became a collective movement for civil, economic and social advancement. Then we can do more on our block, the more in our on our state, our country and across seas. But until we think like that. See, we keep operating like we're in a silo, and that ain't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> I am attorney Ernest B. Fenton. On the line with us is business icon James H. Lowry, senior advisor at Boston Consulting Group and president of James H. Lowry and Associates and the author of Pick Up the Book. I'll certainly be ordering it. Uh, matter of fact, before I leave air, the um, next break, Change Agent. A life dedicated to creating wealth for minorities. Change agent. A life dedicated to creating wealth for minorities. Welcome back to the show, Mr. Lowry. And I have to say this before we get to the, the thing. I'm be a brief. I would be remiss if I didn't really bring up the name of my nephew, Bill Lowry, who's a lawyer too. Mm. He has a very large yeah. law firm. Yeah, yeah. And I said, he wanted to run. And I said, well, you know, I was, I've been in politics one way or another. I, said, I don't know if you want to do that. He said, I have to do it because we have to have people who can be change agents in government. And he's done a great job. So, I, you know, there are the politicians who believe in the right things that you and I believe in. Right. To put it in time. So he's done a great job. So what I'm going to do, if I can, 
Hold really on. quickly, because I know you you gonna you gonna have fun on these max three. I'm just gonna list them. Okay, and then you could because we're talking about. I said one black must support well managed nonprofits. Underline well managed mm-hmm. nine conduct research, which you and I have talked about. But the tenth one I put in deliberately making the last. We have to stop the crabs in the barrel mentality. Now that's it. Those are <laughs> Okay, now you can react. I can. I may read your book this weekend. That's my goal. <laughs> I'm going to make a lot of notes. They say copious notes, like I'm back in school. I'm going to make copious notes and send them to you, all marked up, right? How do you stop? I'll just jump right to that one. Like, how do you stop the crabs in the barrel mentality, though? I mean, at first we got to deal. Okay, let's deal with research. Yes. What I said. I say this in the book. I, I said this at Harvard once. And I was talking about it, and, and the brothers in the back of the room would say, oh, Larry, you can't go there. You can't say that in front of this mixed audience. And I heard them say this. I said, are you dumb? I said, here you are at Harvard. If you don't realize the crabs in the barrel mentality was started in Africa mm. when tribes were yeah. pitted against one another. Yeah. It, and it continued when yeah. we were brought over as slaves. Yeah. It continued when we were picking cotton as slaves, mm-hmm. and we had people in the house, and we had people in the field. Mm-hmm. It has continued when we make a distinction on the color of our skin. Right. People, this is right. a 400 deer, de, what can we say, changing the mindset. It ain't going to be easy, right. but we got to start and try, and we got to do it one-on-one, as many people as I convinced to do this, and I try and be it as a model. I never badmouth anybody. I will try and help everybody else because that is, and they've been trying to make me do this for 30 and 40 years. I won't do it. Other people, that person is a unique person with unique problems. Okay, I'm not going to badmouth them. I'm not going to try and take advantage mm-hmm. of my position and beat them down. So mm-hmm. I think we got to do one-on-one. We have to do it family by family. But don't, just like you're saying, crossing your, you're saying it with rejection. Say, how in the heck are we going to tackle that one? But if we don't tackle it, yeah, we're in trouble. Make the progress. We're in trouble. Let, let me ask you this one because I, I would, and I might just send you an email with a hundred questions or something. But anyhow, <laughs> um, research. What research do we need? What research should we be doing? That's a great question. And in the book, I talk about. You know, we have some great scholars. Okay. Skip, Skip Gates is a great scholar. Mm-hmm. You know, he's done great work in TV and everything. But when I started looking at the curriculums at our historically black colleges, I didn't see too much about the history of black business. Mm-hmm. I didn't see too mm-hmm. much about business. Okay, so I will take my hat off to Juliet Richardson when we talked about three or four years ago. I said, Juliet, you have all these history makers. But when are you going to focus on, you know, doing something and bringing up the history of blacks in business, bringing up the facts about Tulsa and and talking about the Tulsa massacre? We have to do this to educate our young people to know where we've come and what are the obstacles that we face. But we have to do our research on black business. So I was fortunate enough to know George Johnson. I was on both his boards, the the bank board and, and, and the hair products board. But we didn't have enough George Johnsons. We didn't have enough John Johnson. Mm-hmm. There's some history here. 
Madam Walker. There's all kinds of history that we should know. We should know who are the players now. If you were to ask your 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 audience how many black billionaires are and who are they, mm-hmm. could they answer? Or who are some of the leaders in these different interests? Could they answer? So we have to educate ourselves on, on business, the history of black business, where we are now, but more importantly, where you're talking, where do we go from here? Right. How do we leverage the platforms that we're all serving from to really help people less fortunate than ourselves who are black? Where do we go from here? How do we work together? Yeah. That, I, that was my whole thing about my book. Yeah, I, I need to make a distinction. Okay. Um, oftentimes when we talk about billionaires, we talk about individuals as billionaires. And I sometimes get turned off by that. They'll say, oh, Jay-Z is a billionaire. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? That really doesn't mean anything to me. Right. right? And um, Hannah, who's sitting over there, and here's the reason why. Mr. Lowry said we need more billionaire. Well, you mentioned how many black billionaires are there, but also you said we need billion-dollar businesses. Businesses. We don't need – we don't – we need – now, it's a – it's it's nice to be a billionaire, but what we really need are billion dollar businesses, right? And I yeah, I think that there are two things. Let's just take that real quick. I know we're running out of yeah. time. But one is the businesses employ a lot of people. Right. The businesses become the models. Yeah. The businesses create the capital to invest in other businesses. Correct. The other thing that you've said throughout this is the mindset of the individuals. So I love LeBron because he he is making money but reinvesting in our community. Yeah. Other people are not doing that. So I'm just saying if you look at other cultures, you're seeing the power of the billionaire and the businesses. Correct. And that's the distinction. Yeah. And Mr. Lowry was about to, in uh, five minutes, explain to us um, – how to end the crabs in the barrel mentality. Your 35 or 40 years in consulting has led you to this moment. This is the moment everybody should be listening to. Or otherwise, if, if, if we don't get that accomplished in the next five minutes, at the very least, pick up his book. Change agent, <laughs> a life, a life dedicated to creating wealth for minorities. All right, start right there. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Yeah, I have a um um I, I have a few questions, and the callers have some questions. Yeah. Based on your experience, all of all of what you've seen, the circles that you have been in, what are we missing? And I know we've sort of hit on it, but just generally broadly, like what what is it that we're missing? You know what I think we're missing? Mm -hmm. The changing of our mindset. Most of the stuff you and I have been talking about, and you've said it very diplomatically, you said it as a lawyer, because you've been, (laughs) we got to change our mindset. Because if we think that the world is going to change because we're just good people, or we're just loving people, that's very important. Mm -hmm. But it ain't going to get us where we want to go. So we have to change our mindset on growth. Mm -hmm. We have to change our mindset on how we're going to work together. We got to change our mindset on size. Mm -hmm. We have to change our mindset on capital, how to accumulate capital, Mm -hmm. how to invest in capital. We have to change our mindset on how do we grow businesses. 
mm. of all sizes. And, and I've had a course at Kellogg School of Business for 20-some years. Mm. And I say, look, if you want to be a small business person and you want to stay on the west side of Chicago, God bless you. The west side needs you. But if you aspire to be larger and you have that mindset to be larger, then you can be larger. You have the skill set. Mm-hmm. You just got to change your mindset and get with the different kinds of people and you can grow your business so you can have 20 and 40, 100 people. Mm-hmm. And if you really think big, you, you can even have a mindset to be a unicorn mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley right? and then and see the graduate, you know, see the money going up, you know? So I think if, if that's what we could do. And if all the leaders from all the different fields, political fields, economic fields, business fields, could work along those same lines and work together, I think we could change a lot. Right. Bill has a question for you. Let's bring Bill onto the line. Bill, welcome to the hey, show. Thanks, Attorney. Yep. Yeah, I'll uh, solve the problem of perhaps in a bell real quick. Open your own business. Want to be a boss, not necessarily an employee for so many years. That would be a good start. And again, I agree with the consultant that um, you have to want to be uh, something greater than what you are and believe mm-hmm. that you can get there. And if right. you have that and then build your uh, skill set up, you, you'll you stay on that path forever, you know, until you mm-hmm. either make it or you don't. Uh, so uh, consultant, uh, one of the questions, I I had three questions real quick. and I think Shoot that first question, people, Bill. Shoot your first question. Uh, the entry-level uh, salary for a consultant, and a major, a good major to focus on as a student yeah. and a client. Your client's needs as a consultant is mostly human resource uh, related in terms of uh, McKinsey, in terms of the mm-hmm. kind of uh, consultants they need or consultation they need. Is it financial, marketing, computer tech? So those were the three. D'Angelo. Yeah, yeah let, let me give you a quick, quick question there, a quick answer. First, if anybody who is a student, undergraduate, wants to be a consultant, then you should consider going to a very distinguished business school. Or if you just go to any business school, because that's where we recruit. We get 90% of our people from business schools. Mm -hmm. And I hate to say it, but it's true. It ain't going to change. Do the best you can at the business school, because we do not hire C students. We do not hire people who, who didn't demonstrate in the academic environment, they could be tough, had the mindset to be a straight-A student. So do well there. And then once you get there, once you come to a, a, a global consulting firm, we don't say what you should be in. What we give you in the first two or three years, a wide array of experiences that demonstrates to you and demonstrates to us where you might be best suited. It might be in consumer, it might be in finance, it might be in public sector, where I work in. But you don't do that coming in. Let us work with you. Let us mold you to be the best you can, and then the rest will fall into place. And I'm sure, uh, Attorney Fenton, you would say the same thing for a law firm. Yeah. um, Mr. Lowry, I shared uh, with the audience that this is the most kind calm empathetic person i've ever been like the last seven months it took me many years and um so but this morning i went in and and i talked about excellence and i'm glad that you just um seconded you know the sentiment that i put forth and i'm like you know 
Every, you know, you can't. So basically, and I hate, I hate to do this to you, Mr. Lowry, but but I shall. It's like basically you can't. He said you can't be a C student. They're not the, at the top. They're not looking for your mediocrity. You, they're not looking for the middle of the road. I keep. I said it, Mr. Lowry, this, this morning. I said like you got to. We got to be the best. You got to right. be the best, and yeah. you got to put in work. You know, right. and I'm glad that that you came back and said that. So thank you for that. Janice, how are you? One question, Janice. Oh, hi. Hi, Mr. Fenton. Well, what I'd like to say is we have got to be honest, too, as black. Mm-hmm. We are not honest. And <laughs> it took me a long time to get in my 50s to see really what was going on in the black community. You spoke of Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson had three covenants done. One, mm-hmm. I'm going to get two. One that was done for Pepsi-Cola which I'm, my family's from the Georgia area, and one that was done with Anheuser-Busch. Now, Hampton is the only university that has uh, a distributorship, and they have it with Pepsi. They don't even need money from um, UNCF. If Jesse had taken those covenants and given them to the black colleges, Morris Brown wouldn't be where it is today. And another thing, his son was able to receive a uh, distributorship from Anheuser-Busch. That mm-hmm. should have gone, hold on a second, that should have gone to Lou Rawls. Because Lou Rawls, when they gave Frank oh, hold on, hold on, Janice. What's your just okay. what's your question? My what's question statement? is that we have got to look deep into our civil rights groups, into our schools, and everything. Most of the blacks who are successful, such as you and Robert F. Smith, left in high school their black schools to go to white schools. So we've got to look at everything in the black community to make it better. All right, thank you. Yeah, I think the only reaction, let's do a fact check here, because I was part of uh, partially what she said is correct, that Jesse did have the covenant. I talk about the covenant. I saw how, how they work, and they did make a difference. You know, it could have been better, but it could have been different. But the, he did never sign the covenant with Pepsi. He signed a covenant with Coke. The first covenant was done with Coke. Pepsi did not want to sign a covenant with Jesse. I was there as a consultant, and I was part of that group that advocated that black people should get uh, different distributors, and we got Pepsi, and we got uh, uh, Jewish Irwin to get them. So that was something we should have gotten more, and now we're at Coca-Cola. I think that there is a, I think we ought to educate, and I've said this throughout, we have to educate the best and the brightest at white schools and black schools. Yeah. I think that there's different experiences. I've, I said in my book, I, I wonder what I would have been differently if I had gone to a historically black college. Mm-hmm. I didn't. But I also went to Grinnell College, which is a white school. Right. I served on that board for 40 years. Right. Who, who else saved, uh, served on that board with me? Warren Buffett. Right. So for 20 years, I was on a board with Warren Buffett. Right. Okay? Exactly. And I worked with mm-hmm. and I know Warren Buffett. The other thing that we should understand, and let's talk about historically black colleges. I've done work there. I've done, I've helped re, well, bolster several black colleges in time and money. But let's be honest here. At Grinnell College, there was a guy named Bob Noyce. You probably don't know who Bob Noyce was. I was in the room when Warren Buffett said, I cannot recommend the Grinnell College invest any money into another trustees company that he's about to start. But if any two trustees want to put money into this school, into his company, I would recommend it. Mm. Bob Noyce started with two of his friends, 
a company called Intel. <laughs> Two oh, people wow. invested uh, three hundred thousand wow. dollars. True story. Mm. They were true what they said they were going to do. And one of the old guys who told me this, when he signed the check over to Grinnell College, because that was what he said he was going to do, his hand was trembling. Grinnell College now has endowment over $2 billion. Wow. So we can't be all black and all white. We have to do both. But where are the trustees of historically black colleges who are giving that kind of money? The endowments of most historically black colleges are very, very small. Yeah. I once did an analysis. You take out five historically black colleges, the average endowment of all the rest of historically black colleges was $6 million. Mm. Mm. Hold on. Repeat that. Repeat that. Say that one more time. You take out the Howards and the Spellmans. You take out five historically black colleges who, who have sizable endowments, compared to what okay but you take and you take all the average endowment of all the other historically black colleges the average endowment when i did the study was six million dollars we cannot grow our institutions on six million dollar (sighs) endowment i was on the board so we get down Mm -hmm. now i was on the board at atlanta university when we did the complex i know all about morris brown I know the mistakes we made in Morris Brown. So we got to be, like you said, you know, uh, attorney, mm-hmm. we got to do our homework. Yeah. And I can tell you the whole book and verse. And we still, I'm still fighting to help grow those, those four or five universities in Atlanta. But we got to say, we got to turn the thing on to us and say, what can we do? What can the boards do with these things? What is the goal? Is the goal to have your name as a board member at AU? Or is it a boy? Is it something that I contributed three hundred thousand dollars that grew into a billion dollars that made Morris Brown or, or Spelman or any of those schools that much stronger? Right, right. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, yeah. don't be sorry. No, it's, it's, it's the it's the spirit of the day. You know, the week and the moment. Um, right. Yeah, it's 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 um it's personal responsibility. We have to take personal responsibility. We have to invest in our own, um, right. seek excellence. But the, the one of the best takeaways or more significant takeaways I hope the audience takes away, and I will too, is like do your homework and get the information, get the data. Is get the data. Get the data. And even on this last point, I got to put this on the table. Yeah. You know, and I'm not being defensive about anything. I don't think Robert L. Smith's got to be defensive about anything. But I was on the board of the Howard Business School. I was on the board for 20 years. The dean was the guy who worked for James H. Lowry and Associates. He asked me to join. I, I didn't go to Howard, right. but I was on that on that board. And when the chance came, I sold the Kaufman Foundation to give $3 million mm-hmm. to Howard. We started the Entrepreneurial Center with the $3 million grant I got from the Kaufman Foundation in Kansas City. For a long time, that $3 million was bigger than anybody has ever given to Howard. Okay? So it doesn't matter if you went to the school, it's where your heart was in terms of trying to make the school better. Mr. Lowry, I very much appreciate the time that you took with with us this morning. Uh, Again, people, this is James H. Lowry, Senior Advisor, Boston Consulting Group, President of James H. Lowry and Associates. Pick up his book and check your numbers, Mr. Lowry, in about 
and five hours or so. I'm speaking to everybody, and we'll push it for the rest of the day. Pick up okay. his book now, like I'm about to, Hannah. Change Agent, A Life Dedicated to Creating Wealth for Minorities on Amazon. Change Agent, A Life Dedicated to Creating Wealth for Minorities. All right, sir, thank you uh, for thank spending you. this time with us, sharing your wisdom with us, um, inspiring us, and uh, producing that book, which I shall be picking up. And hopefully I'll get an autographed copy and I'll send you mine as well. All right? Okay. Appreciate it. All right. Have a great day. And your nephew, Bill, he's my Facebook friend. That's my buddy. And he worked with James Bates Lowry for every summer when he was in high school. Okay. Have a beautiful day, sir. Nice right. to meet Take you. Care.